Hello, and welcome to Breadcrumbs, a podcast brought to you by Trace Labs. Our mission here is to deliver OSINT for everyone. We hear from community leaders, industry experts, and everyday people about the tools, topics, and techniques that will make your OSINT collection better. Hello, thank you for joining us. We are joined today by Rob Sell, founder of Trace Labs. We're going to be picking his brain about search and rescue in the physical space and some of the parallels to search and rescue in the virtual space. Rob, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to uh, talk to you today. Yeah, um, I thought I would be missing an opportunity with the Trace Labs podcast if I didn't interview the founder of Trace Labs. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a good way to get your podcast shut down. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's see how it goes. I'm sure it'll be uh, entertaining. Certainly, certainly. Um, so I have always been fascinated by your background, um, not your day job, but kind Thanks. of some of your other volunteer work that you do on the side. So what a lot of people might not know about you, um, if they know you from Trace Labs, is you have about a decade of experience in physical search and rescue. Is that true? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've been doing that for, uh, yeah, over a decade now. Seems like a lot shorter because it's been so enjoyable, right? It's uh, a key component of my life now, and uh, I really enjoy it. Um, Yeah, it's, yeah, over a decade. Hard to believe. Hard to believe I'm that old already. (laughs) How did you get into search and rescue? Like, were you already an Mm -hmm. avid outdoors person and just wanted to help? Or how did you end up there? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a weird story. Um, I, I grew up on Quadra Island. It's a small island between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And, and so I kind of grew up in this rural countryside area where I was fishing and hiking and exploring. So I'm very familiar with the outdoors. And as a, as a kid, that was really, you know, I used to joke that my front yard was the Pacific Ocean and the backyard was endless forests. And so that was kind of a unique childhood, I think, in many ways. And then, of course, to work and go to school, I came to the city, and that component of my life kind of went away. And then there was an ad in the paper. My wife saw this ad in the paper, and she came rushing over to me, very excited, and said, oh, you got to check this out. This is amazing. They take you by helicopter and drop you off in the middle of nowhere, and you have to find your way back. And of course, that wasn't true. But it sounded good enough for me to go to the information session and and check it out. And so I I went to the information session and it's about 300 people that night that are in there and they all look like, like out of a movie almost. Right. And, 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 you know, one of those adventure movies and, and I'm not, so I, I showed up and, um, and I thought, okay, there's no chance I'm going to be accepted into this, but I'll, I'll hang out. I'll put in my application and I did that, and um, I got shortlisted. They took me on a evaluation hike, which was, uh, you know, a, a hike, a few hour hike. It wasn't too taxing or anything like that. And actually, I remember I went there with a, a friend of mine who I used to hike with a lot, and he was out of the British Special Forces, and uh, he was, you know, very, very well trained, w- way more trained than I was. Right? He was teaching me things the night before that I should probably know, and. Uh, and he got cut at that point and I kept going and he never talked to me again after that, that, which was unfortunate. So, but I think he was so upset that I was, that I was brought in and he was not, um, which was weird. And then the final stage is a, 
interview where they simply ask you a bunch of questions. And I didn't know at the time, but a large part of it was simply selecting people with some common sense that you wouldn't mind just staying out all night with in the woods um, and that wouldn't drive you crazy. So I must have been on pretty good behavior because it all worked out. Were you going out there as a group? So is that why you did kind of like the psychological sort of human interaction part, just just to make sure you weren't going to like butt heads with anybody in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, I think the evaluation hike is really interesting on several levels, right? And it is all psychological. There's no fitness component to it so much because everybody that gets to that stage is is pretty fit. And now I actually, I do the hikes myself. And so I'm uh, the evaluator side now, which is interesting. So I kind of know what they were looking for when I was uh, a contestant, right? And, uh, uh, or applicant. And, and so it's really... Does the person just race off ahead and leave the group trying to show how fit they are? Um, how well prepared do they come to the hike? Uh, things like that that are just small, simple things, but you can you can really tell pretty quickly if they're going to be a good team player. Um, and also just having a conversation with them while you're hiking. Uh, that's interesting as well. I remember uh, the guy that was with me, we were going up this very steep hill and I was losing, you know, my, my breath was really heavy. I'm trying to breathe properly. And he's asking me all these questions, kind of rapid fire. And, and I'm trying to do my best to answer them. And I'll always remember that. But stuff like that, I think, is uh, there's a definitely a psychological impact there or component. It looks like you made it back. Obviously, you're here today mm-hmm. having a conversation with me. So it sounds like that's something that you that you stuck with, like those sort of get dropped off for an adventure kind of deals. Yeah, no, absolutely. It um, when I first went into it, I didn't really realize what it was going to do to my life. I, I knew it was going to be pretty good because every time I would go, the training was more and more interesting, and the adventure component was definitely there. You're not always getting picked up or dropped off by helicopter. There's all sorts of other things to do with it. Um, not all glamorous, right? I mean, one of the last tasks I did were hiking through the the culverts where all the muddy water is going through, right? So, and you're coming out of that and you just stink and it's just really gross. But so you're doing all sorts of things that are not very glamorous, but you're doing it with people that are very uh, like-minded. And so they're very fun to hang out with, uh, but very sort of task-orientated um, adventure focused, um, great to go outdoors with. If you want to go skiing or hiking or running or whatever, those are the people you call. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been a great, great experience so far. At what point did you really jump into the search and rescue aspect? It sounds like that was the genesis or maybe the rebirth of your passion for the outdoors. How did that translate into actually looking for people that were lost? Yeah. So when you first start off with search and rescue, um, you start off as a MIT, a member in training. And so you go for, it depends on which group you're in on the duration, but but it's usually roughly about two years of, of training. Uh, we were deployed in the field pretty quickly. So I think we, we did kind of about a month or so of textbook study, and then we were already kind of field active, although we were still getting trained on stuff. So we started searching for people pretty quickly um, after I joined, which was really exciting. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing very much at that point, but, um, in the field training is always pretty exciting and, and keeps you motivated. So, and then over the years, you specialize in certain areas 
And I think for me, I really gravitated towards a, a couple areas. One of them was tracking. And so I think the, the mystery around tracking someone in the woods and you see all these TV shows like Man Tracker. I, I don't think that's on anymore, but in its time, that was very popular. And, you know, the guy's very mysterious and he can look at the trail and, and tell you all about the people that traveled it and things like that. So I was always uh, very drawn to that. So I, I did a lot of training in that and got to travel around BC and do a little bit of that and, um, and then apply it in the field. So I think that's one of my favorites um, things to do when we're searching for people, but uh, yeah, lots of other stuff. Swift water rescue, mountain rescue, first aid. It's all uh, pretty interesting. So I've got a, a theory or a suspicion that a lot of the skills that, you know, lead you to finding people in a forest on a mountain next to a river, I think those probably translate into what we do at Trace Labs or it, it translates mm -hmm. into a virtual search what, do you what are your thoughts on that? Like, what are your, do you yeah. see those same parallels? And if so, like, what are some of them? No, absolutely. Yeah. So for me, it's been really a special experience to go from search and rescue, uh, that kind of traditional model um, into trace labs, which I, I view as a very progressive and modern way of, of doing what we do. Um, you're kind of, you're helping in the same area, which is, but, but one's a little bit more modern, right? And, but the concepts are the same, uh, very much the same. And I think that, I think for contestants, that's important to think about because uh, you get a lot of people that are, that'll come into our CTF and they haven't done it before. They may not have a security background. They may be wondering if they can, if they can do that uh, successfully, right? And, and the answer is, yeah, they can. The, the idea is there that you're not necessarily going to find the person. And I think as a tracker, that's what I'm always thinking about, not necessarily finding the person, but finding what we call sign. And sign is any indication of the person. And that's what we do at Trace Labs, right? That's contestants come in and they find all sorts of um, things on the internet that are then submissions. So that could be um, a picture of them. It could be their social media. Uh, an array of different things that give us some idea around their pattern of life or direction of travel. And as a tracker, I'm doing the same thing. I'm going very slowly through where they were collecting information that gives me kind of a current state. So I'm looking at, okay, what's their shoe size? What kind of pattern do they have on the bottom of their shoe? So I'm not finding them. I'm really just finding traces of them. Uh, and then from that, I can start to develop a kind of a theory about, okay, they went in that direction. They went north. And that's really important, not only to a tracker, but in our CTFs as well. We're kind of figuring out, okay, we don't know where they are right now, but if we can figure out kind of where they might be going or some of their patterns, like they like to stay at their friend's house or something like that, right? Or maybe they like to go hiking in the woods or they, or they want to travel to Mexico, or whatever that is. I think that's really important. And that can ultimately lead to location. So there's lots of parallels there. It's, um, it's really interesting to see that, to go from the woods to the internet, um, but have the same sort of mindset. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think with my experience with the search party CTFs, I, I guess we should maybe press pause right there and say, 
it's not a coincidence that we call those search party CTFs. Like a physical search party in a forest is sort of the original crowdsourced missing persons investigation. Just get a bunch of people that want to help together, point them in the right direction and try to find somebody in the woods, for example. We're doing the same thing in cyberspace, Mm -hmm. um, just with a lot more people uh, from all around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing that jumped out at me about what what you just told us was that you're not going to, you're not focused on finding the person. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't set out and say, okay, I'm on the lookout for, you know, Tom, you know, he's wearing an orange shirt. I'm looking for a dude in an orange shirt in the forest. Well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, in a, in a virtual search, Hey, we're trying to find Tom on the internet. Well, good mm-hmm. luck. Uh, yeah. But instead just looking for, you know, those signs of Tom, you know, looking for mm-hmm. the direction Tom was going, uh, looking for, you know, the, the things he said online, looking for the, mm-hmm. the different profiles he had, the people he interacted with that could point mm-hmm. a law enforcement investigator in that right direction. Um, yeah. Would you want to talk about some of the pre-work you have to do before like looking for someone in the real world? I'm guessing you don't just mm-hmm. show up and say, okay, we're trying to find Tom. So it's quite a bit of preparation for any given search. I mean, we're all so used to it now that we roll out and we know the protocols. And the minute I, I get the call, I start to follow these different protocols that we've been trained on. Everything from what I need, depending on the time of year, to the radio comms that I'll start to do at the minute I get in my truck, um, you know, things like that. So it's all kind of second nature to most of us now. But yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of training And I think that that actually touches on an area where with Trace Labs, we've overcome a lot of the need for that prep for new people that are coming into our search parties, right? So in Search and Rescue, we have these trained individuals. And in my group, there's about 50 people. Uh, About 35 of them at any given time are usually what we call field active. So if we have a search, we'll do a call out and we'll probably get anywhere from five to 35 people show up for our area, uh, which is pretty good. But if we're doing multiple operational periods and it's, you know, going into the third day and we still haven't found that that child and it's getting cold out, then now we have a bit of a problem, right? So we have to do what's called mutual aid. So we'll call other teams in the neighborhood or, or neighboring areas and try to bring them in. But sometimes even that's not a lot of people necessarily, right? So the other option there is to bring in what we call convergent volunteers. And that's just people off the street, general public that come in and wanna help. And that's often happening, we find, especially the family and the friends, they wanna help. But the problem we have is we can't just send them out into the woods because then they may get lost themselves or they may get hurt and all of a sudden, our searches become much more complicated. But what I found with Trace Labs is we've, we're able to do that because we're able to utilize what, what I would call convergent volunteers, which are the, all the new people that are coming into our community. And they, they don't know, maybe they've never done open source intelligence. They've never searched for somebody online, but we're able to get them up to speed within basically our one hour introduction at the beginning of every search party 
and get them geared up so that they're safe, but then they're also able to operate, right? So we've overcome that problem, which most of the physical industry never really has. So I think that's, to me, that's a really cool accomplishment for, for us in the community. Yeah, definitely. I've always been super impressed by our ability to take people with no, you know, formal security experience or even potentially any formal search experience and, Mm -hmm. you know, have them be a benefit to the search, you know, have them be useful, Mm -hmm. have them be productive and, you know, contributing members of the team. And I think that's probably one of the, like the advantages of a virtual search um, because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't necessarily have the safety concerns like you would have in a physical search. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're able to, you know, we're truly just aggregating data. You know, we're not like you yeah. hit on earlier, you know, we're not finding a person. We're just collecting mm-hmm. information. I, I think also our model is also helps with that. Right. And it helps keep people safe. And and I think the model is really important how we've set our scope. So we we could have done it many different ways but i think the the way that we do it with passive reconnaissance where we're not interfering and and i think everybody always wants to do as much as possible to help especially when we're in this sort of a situation whether it be a physical search or the online search that we do uh, everybody wants to keep going and do whatever they can and i think by putting that limit on it and saying hey our our line is here and we only go that far Sometimes it, it feels like we're being constrained, but I think it it's helping the whole community as well as the the, the police and the and the family. So it's it's interesting our model. I think we did well there by uh, by setting it up that way. Certainly, I definitely agree with that. Something I'd like to do, maybe kind of an exercise or a thought experiment. Um, could you walk us through? Like if you were participating in a trace lab mm-hmm. CTF, um, just walk us through some of your high level methodology. You know, how, how do you gather information online? And then mm-hmm. if you can, you know, maybe draw some parallels to a physical search. Like, oh, it's kind of like, sure. you know, if I'm looking for a person in a forest, here's where I would start. Yeah. Or, you know, here's, here, here's where I like to start because of my experience looking for people in the real world. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Actually, I'd, I'd love to do a CTF, you know, I've never done one. And, <laughs> and, and, and every time I'm involved in hours, right, we're always kind of behind the curtain, helping do the, doing the organization and everything. And I'm always watching the contestants have a great time. And I'm always a bit jealous of that. Right. So one day I'm going to flip roles, I think, and, and, and try that out. But um, yeah, so if I was doing that, and when I do do that in the field, there are certain things that, uh, I'm always thinking about, and I think that at the very beginning, very beginning, I'm looking at myself. I'm looking at, am I prepared for what I'm about to do? And for us, our CTF is about, you know, it's six hours, but it's six intense hours. So that would mean for, in that case, do I have some, you know, coffee to drink? Do I have some snacks? Am I in a comfortable room with a comfortable chair? all those things that are going to allow me to operate efficiently for six hours. When I'm out in the bush, it's a different story, right? So I've got about a 50 pound pack on, I've got a bunch of rain gear in there. I've got warm clothes, spare clothes, food, water, um, 
first aid. I've got a bunch of things that I can call upon in case I need that, right? So I've thought about myself. Uh, the next thing that I look at, and this may seem kind of uh, redundant or silly a little bit, but it's surprising how many times that can actually be an issue. So, you know, in when you're doing the CTF, if all of a sudden you have to change rooms or that location no longer becomes available or something like that, that, that can cause big delays, right? So, so I look at myself first, then I look at my team. So is my team also prepared, right? Do we know who's doing what? And, you know, do we have those logistics figured out? Uh, are we going to take different people? Are we going to search for different people? Or are we all going to, as a team, focus on one person? Kind of having that strategy laid out. When I'm out in the bush, we're going to talk about, okay, who's doing comms? Who's first aid? Who's taking lead? What are our shifts going to be? So am I going to take lead for two hours or three hours? Uh, things like that. We may even talk about what we did the day before to see who's tired and who's not and, and things like that, right? So, you know, self-team. And then the next thing I'm looking at is subject. So self-team subject is kind of the concept. So when I'm looking at subject, the first thing I look at is, okay, what do I have? What do I know? And, and, and is it wrong? Because usually it is. Um, that's the sad truth. So if I'm given a name, I'll ask, is that really the name? Or is that the nickname or the handle or the correct spelling um, or, or not even the name? Um, it's surprisingly sad how often the first information you get will be wrong. Uh, in our CTFs, of course, we are always checking that. So that's usually not a problem for our contestants. But I think when they're looking then for the social media sites, they sometimes may get the wrong ones. And so if they initially get the wrong one, then everything after that could be incorrect, right? So if you find the wrong Facebook site for the person, kind of looks like them, but it's not. Now, all of a sudden, all your stuff could be wrong, right? So I think that's something to look, look out for. Um, so I'm always checking, is, is what I have correct as a starting point? Because um, to go backwards is is frustrating, right? Yeah, so, so. In, in the physical world, that would be equivalent to just walking off in the completely wrong direction. Yeah. You know, following yeah, the wrong trail, so to speak. Yeah, that, absolutely. And, and once you do that, I mean, there's all sorts of drawbacks to that, right? You've lost a bunch of time. Your team is frustrated. You're getting more tired. Uh, the light's going to change. You probably polluted the uh, the area with your footprints, so now it's even more difficult to pick up the other tr proper track. So yeah, there's all sorts of bad things there. Awesome. I think that's some really solid advice, and I think if we interviewed some of the top teams that tend to place highly, they'd probably tell a similar story. Um, I liked the sort of the three-step process you went through. It was self-team subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah, I, I think people could apply that probably to almost any sort of search or even maybe leadership position, but I think that's very, very relevant to our, to our CTFs. Having your stuff locked down, making sure your team knows what they're supposed to be doing, and then making sure you know as much as you possibly can about the person that you're trying to find. Yeah, I see people doing it, and I, and I of course, I, they don't necessarily think about those three words, but I see a lot of the teams that do very well. They come in, they know what they need to do, they know what the task is, and they're very well prepared to go and execute. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're kind of following that principle without kind of thinking about it, I think, so. 
Very yeah. good. Um, we spent the last section talking about some of the parallels. You know, how is your experience in physical search, you know, directly relatable or translatable into a virtual search? Do you want to touch on the opposite? You know, where, you know, what are some things that don't translate either from physical to virtual or vice versa? Yeah, sure. I think the physical is um, a little bit different because you're, uh, there's variables there that you need to worry about. I think a little bit more things like weather uh, and stuff like that, terrain as well. And there's variables in the virtual world that are kind of similar, right? So you might be able to kind of relate weather to your internet connectivity, maybe, um, and things like that. Uh, the person you're searching for, quite often when we're searching for people, I want to understand their state of mind. And I want to know if they're going to be um, okay with me finding them. Uh, you know, and I think that when you're searching for somebody online, you're looking at their kind of operational security, their OPSEC, and you're, 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 you want to know if they're going to be able to detect you looking for them, right? So our passive reconnaissance shouldn't give them any indication that we're looking for them. But it, it's the same sort of thing there where I'm, I'm being careful, I think. Um, give you an example of that. So out in the woods, searching for this uh, two two guys out in the woods and following the the empty beer cans of Milwaukee beer that we were finding every half a half a mile or so. Uh, finally meeting up with them, and you know, not really hostile towards us, but I could definitely tell that um, their state of mind perhaps wasn't uh, the best. So understanding what that's going to look like when you do actually find the person. I think uh, out in the woods, it's a little different because you're, you you often do eventually bump into them. So I think that uh, interaction is uh, is slightly different. So yeah, there's I think also um, the mental the mental strain on our CTFs. The person gets mentally tired out in the bush. You're going to get mentally tired and also also physically tired as well. So um, because of the terrain. So yeah, there's. Some differences for sure. I think more similarities than differences, but um, I get the exact same feeling from our CTF that I do when I'm tracking, I find. so. Do you feel like the virtual search community is maybe gaining more mainstream acceptance in law enforcement and government circles? Yeah. You know, compared to absolutely, especially like, you know, let's go back 10 years or even five years, yeah. I feel like it's, it's, it's seen as much more of a viable supplement to an investigation mm -hmm. than it would have been. You know, if you told someone 20 years ago, Hey, I'm Tom from the internet mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, I saw yeah. this murder for you. What? Go away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, even three years, Tom, like it's, it's been crazy. I, I find that way. I, I, I remember talking to people in law enforcement three years ago about OSINT and they were saying, "Is what is that? Is that for fraud detection or something like that? And, and, and you know, maybe those were just people that were not familiar with some of the technology of law enforcement that have been doing this for years. But I think that before that was more of a specialty thing um, than an, a main mainstream uh, practice, I, I think, right? And now we've seen these uh, Netflix films come out, Don't F with Cats, and all these other things in the mainstream media, the Wisdom of the Crowd, all these series, right, that have come out, 
that have really focused on um, crowdsourcing and OSINT. And so it's definitely, definitely has grown a lot. There's definitely much more attention around it now. And I think the law enforcement in particular has, um, has seen the value in it. And, uh, you know, before the, the reaction would pr pretty much be nothing, right. It would be, you know, who are you, what is this sort of thing? Um, to now there's, there's questions, right. And, and people want to learn more about us and what we're doing and how OSIN can really help them and whatever they're trying to do. So yeah, it's night and day difference over just three years. Incredible. One thing that's always struck me with how Trace Labs conducts itself, and I think I see a parallel to the physical world, is setting some ground rules or setting some rules of engagement um, and you know how that contributes to not only the safety of the team, but also the, the success of the mission. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. And um, there, there's parallels there, there for sure with both the physical and what we do. I'll talk about the physical first. So when we start off on a task, it's very clear what each team is going to do. Uh, we get a, a geographical area. It could be, uh, you know, go do that trail or go do that river or whatever it is. And we know how long we have to do it. We know who's going to be there. We know where the other teams are. So it's it's really laid out quite well. We know what's going on. We know what comms or channel we're going to be on, all these things. Uh, so it's well coordinated and, and that's done on purpose. We don't want any confusion while we're out there. Um, and then with our model, it's very similar, right? So in, in SAR, we're, we're not only concerned about the person we're searching for, we're also concerned about the, our, our field teams that are out there. We want to make sure they're safe. So it's very well organized in trace labs, similar type of thing. We want to make sure that our contestants are safe. Um, and, and, a lot of that is psychological, right? We want we don't want to expose them to anything that they they shouldn't, and we also don't want them to engage where they shouldn't, right? Because that can then lead down the road to to things that we 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 don't want to get involved in. So, you know, we set our scope up specifically to to avoid those sort of things, right? This open source intelligence, passive reconnaissance, is designed to set up our scope so that contestants can come in, have a very enjoyable user experience, and then provide a lot of value to law enforcement, but not endanger themselves, not expose them to, to themselves to any unnecessary risk, and, and then also just not have that great of time, right? It's in, in search and rescue, those limits are, are well understood, and, and there's no problem in doing them. I know that when I'm done my task, I go back command and they'll give me a new one and I'll go back out and do another one. And, and it's just kind of, uh, I guess, ingrained in you. And I, I think for us, I was a little bit worried how well that was going to work with that scope. It's worked out pretty well, I think, so far. I think the, the community and the team has really built that up in a way that it it works well. So I think, and I think that's one of the reasons that, that makes us valuable to law enforcement is because they can look at our scope and they can understand it, much like they understand the search and rescue scope. They can go, okay, well, that's that's going to work for us because that's not going to interfere with an ongoing investigation. And, and that material that they're going to give us, then we can we can use, and that's going to be good. So, yeah. Is there anything else on your mind? You know, the physical space versus the virtual space. Any 
any any lessons you've learned from one or the other that translates back and forth? Like, oh, I became a better, you know, virtual searcher after I mm-hmm. realized blank, or you know, I I I you know, after doing this for a few years, I I made this connection and it actually made me a better, you know, investigator. Yeah, there's so much there, Tom. It's 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 kind of crazy. I I think about it a lot, and, and I. I often get frustrated because I, I find that in a lot of things we do, we're pretty primitive, right? And I, and I, it's, it's frustrating because our, our, our rate of change is not very fast, I find. And, you know, then that's for various reasons, right? It's, I'm not blaming any, anybody or any organization or anything like that. It's just the way that, that things are. I, I think that, there's been a lot of grassroots changes over the over the years where we're seeing people look at these problems and and want to improve them, but it's hard. I, I think what I've learned over this time is that there's a lot of good ideas out there and a lot of ways to improve this, and there's a lot of technologies that we can utilize to rapidly improve the way we do things. People are often, uh, you know, hesitant. I guess is the right word to deploy these certain technologies. And we see that across the board, right? Like if you look at drones, for example, drone usage, um, you know, even saying the word, people are gonna have different feelings about that. And this whole unmanned type of uh, autonomous vehicles and how they operate there, you know, there's lots of debate there. You know, in the SAR field, we utilize drones more and more now and we can deploy them into areas where humans can't go safely uh, at times when we can't go there safely. And, and so it's in, in many ways, it's very beneficial. So there's, uh, I think just seeing what we're doing, what the community is doing in trace labs makes me think about that more and more, right? We're making some pretty good progress there and changing how the, the world, not just the region, but how the world operates with the missing persons industry. And I, I would hope that that, that there's many other organizations like ours out there that want to do the same thing. People out there that want to do a very similar thing, not necessarily what we're doing, but something that's going to change the way the process works, whether it be missing persons or, or whatever. Right. And kind of challenging that a little bit in, in a good way. So uh, kind of pushing the envelope. So that, that's kind of what I come away with a lot, right. Implementing technologies. Sorry, I'm rambling on this one a little bit, but it's, the missing persons industry is one of those things where nobody thinks about it until their friends or family is missing, right? So there's no, there's no wide community uh, effort to go say, hey, let's go improve missing persons. Let's go make that a better experience where more people come home, right? You don't, you don't hear people walking down the street saying that, oh, we got to go fix that. It doesn't really happen, right? So I think that, um, but it's a, a problem that we really need to try to solve. And I think that technology can help us do that. Um, and it's not gonna get done necessarily by government or law enforcement or anything like that. I think it's really up to the people out there that have interest in these things. So whatever is of interest to people, for them to go out there and look at how it can be better. There's a lot of smart people out there that can do some amazing things. So. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to come speak to me. I know I've learned a lot, and I hope our listeners have too. This has been another episode of Breadcrumbs. If you'd like to learn more about the organization, you can find us at tracelabs.org. 
find us on Twitter at Trace Labs. But if you really want to find us, just follow the breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm.